Hello and welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francion. This is our 18th No Frills, No Bells, No Whistles Commentary concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, the failure of animal welfare regulation, veganism as the moral baseline of the animal rights movement, and creative nonviolent vegan advocacy as the cornerstone of animal rights activism, and the principle of ahimsa, or nonviolence, and its role in all of our advocacy efforts. Well, it's been a long time since I did my last podcast. It was back in May. By the way, I want to tell you all now, uh, there are people working in the area, so that at any moment you may hear five uh, canines go wild and start barking. So uh, I apologize in advance should that happen, but you are on notice. Uh, anyway, so it's been a, been a while since I did the last commentary in May, and I would like to share a couple of things with you that have happened uh, since that time. Uh, the, um, the first abolitionist workshop took place in May, the end of May of this year, uh, at Rutgers University. We had a group of people uh, from different parts of the United States, from Canada and from South America, and uh, we all assembled at Rutgers, where I teach, and we talked about the abolitionist approach for two days. We had two 10-hour uh, sessions in which we discussed the abolitionist approach and various issues uh, uh, about it, and uh, we also talked about various ways to make vegan advocacy more effective and to reach more people. And it was an interesting and, and, and from my perspective, an absolutely wonderful experience. Uh, we kept the, the initial workshop uh, fairly small in number. You see, you see what I mean. You see, you see what I was referring to before. Um, nothing I can do about it. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, and uh, this is going to be going on, I think, uh, for the next several days. So uh, I'm not, I'm not going to have a better time to do it. Um, in any event, uh, we kept the initial workshop small because. Um, it, it wasn't clear uh, how it was going to work in terms of um, bringing together a group of people who by and large did not know each other and had never interacted with each other except over the internet uh, and um, you know which and internet interactions can provide a somewhat false sense of um, of, uh, of, of relationship uh, and certainly uh, a sense of relationship that does not uh, reflect uh, what real personal relationships are like um, you know, to the extent that we still have them and they haven't all been turned into cyber relationships. But in any event, so, so uh, we, we assembled a group of people. Uh, we worked very, very closely for, for two days. Uh, we had terrific discussions uh, in terms of the, um, the, the, the level of understanding of the participants and the sorts of questions with which they came uh, were uh, very impressive to me. And we had a really, really good uh, two-day session. And um, we went to some great vegan restaurants um, uh, during those two days. And we had, uh, we had fun. So I expect to do more of these in the future. And I apologize now to, and probably should have earlier, but I haven't done a commentary since, since May, uh, for the, uh, the people who had heard about this and had uh, written to me asking to be included. And uh, for the most part, we really couldn't include those people because, as I said, I wanted to keep it small the first time out. And um, and the next time I do this, I, I will, I'm more comfortable about having it be a larger number of people. 
I still I think it would be a mistake to 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 change it from a seminar format to a class format and sort of have a, a really large group. Uh, I think it should be uh, it should remain a seminar in a seminar format. Although I think I can expand the size of the seminar. But in order for this thing to work the way I want it to work, and for the dynamic to be what I want it to be, and for the exchange for the ex- the, the exchange um, that we all have with each other, I, and the, the 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 nature of the interactions, I think it has to be a, sm- a, a, a fairly confined group and can't be a. Uh, a, a, a mob scene. In, in earlier years, um, I actually did in the 19, I guess it, it was in the, uh, well, in the 1980s and, and in the early 1990s, I did some, some, uh, I wouldn't call them workshops because they weren't, they really weren't sustained. They were more sort of a, a day long, uh, or not, not even that. It was probably about a half day, uh, sessions, uh, at, uh, I did one at the University of Pennsylvania uh, where I was teaching uh, from 84 to 89 and I did one um, at Rutgers when I moved to Rutgers and they were larger groups and um, I, I always felt that, that having the large group when you're trying to really um, uh, engage in some intense education uh, it, it's difficult it, it is difficult to do in a large group and and many people are just reluctant to speak in a, in a, in a larger group they don't like uh, the idea of talking in a, in a large classroom setting and are much more amenable to doing that in the seminar setting so uh, when we do these things in the future uh, I hope to include more of you and I really appreciate the um, the interest that I, I got when um, when when people were uh, people found out about this and, and wanted to come, so it was um, reassuring to know that there were a lot of folks out there who were interested. And again, I apologize, and I hope uh, in the future to uh, have uh, more of these things, and so that all of you who want to attend uh, a workshop and and discuss these issues will be able to do so. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is uh, I've completed my most recent book, The Animal Rights Debate. Uh, Abolition or Regulation, which I co-wrote with Professor Robert Garner of the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. Columbia University Press is publishing the book, and you can pre-order the book uh, at the Columbia University Press website. I suspect there are other uh, vendors that that, that are pre-selling it now as well. And um, the book uh, is, as the... uh, as the title suggests, is a debate. It's a debate between uh, with between uh, uh, Professor Garner and me. And uh, in the first part of the book, uh, I present a defense of the abolitionist approach to animal rights. In the second part of the book, Professor Garner talks about a uh, his defense of animal welfare regulation. In the third part of the book, we debate. And uh, I think it's um, well, I hope you make you make the judgment uh, uh, what you think of the book in terms of I hope it will help your your thinking about these issues, and I also hope that it will help you be a more effective advocate. So that book should be out shortly. Uh, I don't know exactly when. Uh, the press is saying November, but um, I think that's an outside date. It, it, I, I hope it will be sooner. It generally is uh, when a publisher says that it's going to be uh, the release date will be a particular release date. Uh, it generally is sooner if the um, if the manuscript is is done and ours has 
ours is done and uh, and 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 in. So uh, I, uh, I, as I say, I hope you find it interesting and it, that it helps your advocacy. Okay. Well, in this podcast, I want to talk about a couple of issues. But before talking about those issues, I wanted to tell you. Let me just click on so I can see this story that I was greeted with this morning uh, when when I arose and um, saw that there was uh, activity on Twitter about the Mercy for Animals campaign to get Costco to agree to only sell veal that is treated, quote, humanely, end quote. And a, uh, a quote from uh, from... Nathan Runkel of Mercy for Animals. Costco has literally taken a step forward on this important issue because they have agreed. They have agreed to sell only humanely raised veal. Uh, And I saw this story and I thought, boy, you know, if there is anything that illustrates the problem of welfareist, new welfareist, single-issue campaign strategy, here it is. So you have this organization that sort of puts itself forward as being for animal rights and 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 you know ultimately wanting uh, uh, abolition, uh, but it's an animal rights organization. And and what's it doing? It's campaigning, and it's excited about the fact that Costco is agreeing to sell only humanely raised veal. And uh, the story goes on to talk about how um, they interview somebody named Gaylord Barkham of Buckeye Veal, which uh, apparently is the uh, is the veal farm that uh, Mercy for Animals investigated and did a, an expose of because they used these uh, veal crates and the animals were in really bad shape, as they are just about any place else as well. Um, and... Um, and they interview this this person from Buckeye Veal who says, well, they're in the process of moving to group housing anyway. And uh, and Costco says, now we're going to do these audits to make sure that all of our veal comes, you know, from humanely, from from uh, uh, you know, is raised humanely, et cetera, et cetera. And 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 then you have an animal rights organization saying, well, obviously, you know, I mean, there's another quote in here that um, that. That ditching veal, this is apparently, I guess, Mr. Runkle, ditching veal is the most compassionate choice shoppers can make to prevent animal abuse. Um, But again, in the context of a campaign in which consumers are being told that Costco has taken an important step, that this is a morally different situation, and and um, we've lost we've lost yet another opportunity to educate about veganism and taken another move to assuring consumers that they can act morally by buying Costco veal. And it's interesting. I mean, it, it, the, the 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 campaign and and the result of the campaign really does illustrate just about everything that's wrong with this way of approaching things. I mean, first of all, it sends the wrong message to consumers. It basically says this is a morally better situation. This is an important step forward. Uh, and and uh, you have uh, a, an alliance between Costco saying, oh, well, we're only going to sell humane veal and a supposed animal rights organization uh, saying this is an important step forward. And you know what? Whatever else you say after that, is lost in the sense that what they what, what the public hears is an important step has occurred and Costco is only going to sell humanely raised veal. 
That's the message that the public hears. That's the problem with these sorts of campaigns. You're telling the public that something important has happened. You're telling the public that something important has happened that, has re- that represents a real step forward for animals and for our treatment of animals. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. It's also interesting to me that the, the person from Buckeye Veal says we're in the process of moving to larger, you know, larger enclosures anyway. The reason for this, as I've pointed out, actually I discussed this quite a bit in the book that, uh, that Garner and I have done, uh, and in other things I've written. For the most part, animal welfare reform makes animal production more efficient. The reason why these, these, these quote, improvements, end quote, are made is because they are in the interest of producers. The veal crate, the solitary veal crate situation is on its way out, and it's on its way out because it is inefficient. It is inefficient. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that a slightly larger enclosure in which animals that have a social nature can interact so that they are not stressed in the way that they're stressed when they are tethered and when they're in the the individual crate, that change will result in far lower costs for veterinary care of these animals. That will reduce production costs. As I've discussed in some of the essays on the website, abolitionistapproach.com and and other writing, uh, this is true of most animal welfare reforms. The reason why they're ultimately made is that they really are in the interests of producers. This is a perfect example. Buckeye veal is already switching to individual crates. I'm sorry, to uh, larger enclosures. And, and, And make no mistake about it. We are not talking about going to a family farm situation that people fantasize about. I'm not even sure they ever existed. But, you know, this idea that people have that, you know, when we get rid of, quote, intensive agriculture or aspects of intensive agriculture, we move to the family farm situation. Well, first of all, I think the family farm situation had, and however idyllic we want to think about it, um, had a lot of suffering, and the bottom line is it's unjust. We are killing non-human animals who have an interest in continuing to live for no good reason. We're not talking about you know the need. To, we're not talking about self-defense here. You know these calves are not uh, threatening us in any way. We're bringing them into existence and we're eating them, um, and that's wrong. I don't care how well you treat them. That's wrong. That can't be morally justified. And and um, and so. You know, make no mistake about it. We're not talking about you know the the, the calves rambling in the meadows uh, until they're slaughtered in a temple grand. And oh, that's another story. We'll get to that in a second. Um, in a uh, you know in a in a temple grand and approved happy slaughterhouse where where the animals are just you know applying. They're filling out applications. Please kill me there. Um, temple really just understands us so well, and she's done such a fine job designing the slaughterhouse. Please, please, please kill me there. And, um, and so we're not talking about a, a, a huge change. We're talking about a small enclosure because ultimately they still want the veal to, be, to appear a certain way so that consumers will buy the veal. So they're not going to allow too much space. Things are not going to change all that much. But they will change. And they will change largely because it's in the interest of the producers to do that. It's in the interest of the producers to do that. Moreover, they make these small changes don't cost them very much and indeed may reduce their production costs. And because 
the animal community has done such a fine job of of telling people that that uh, you know crate feel crate free veal is a great thing. There's actually an increase in, in consumption of veal. I discuss this in my in my book as well. That some of the 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 or at least one of the major veal producers in this country says that by moving to this, by moving to the to the the uh, crate free situation, it's actually going to increase the consumption of veal because people will feel better about eating veal. And he says that explicitly. So this is really in the interests of industry. It's going to cut down on their veterinary costs and it's going to make people feel better about eating veal. And it's not going to result in a significant welfare benefit for animals if you look at their entire lives. You're still talking about torture. It's the difference between torturing somebody on a waterboard that has padding and torturing somebody on a waterboard that doesn't have padding. That's what it's about. Okay? So... This is really, this whole situation, this whole campaign, really illustrates the problems of the single-issue welfareist campaign. It's nonsense. And interestingly, you know, I went over to the Mercy for Animals website, and I just looked at their homepage, where the word vegan doesn't appear. But I can tell you what does appear MFA believes non-human animals are irreplaceable individuals with morally significant interests and hence rights. Well, that sounds good. This includes the right to live free from unnecessary suffering and exploitation. Well, in the context of what we've just seen in terms of their Costco campaign, unnecessary suffering apparently means getting them out of the crates. And if it means something else, gee whiz, it would really be nice, Mercy for Animals, if you told us. I don't see the word vegan on your homepage. Maybe it's there somewhere. Maybe in your site it's there. I also see free vegetarian starting kit. Let's not use the word vegan. No, no, no. Let's not do that. Let's not, let's not do that. The word vegetarian is there on a free vegetarian starter kit. But the word vegan doesn't appear anywhere on that homepage. On the other hand, donation options do. Make a car donation. Leave MFA in your will. Donate a portion of your eBay sales. Recurring donation from a debit card or credit card. So there we are. No use of the word vegan on the homepage. But, let me see. Oh, I don't know. A little less than half of the material on the homepage dedicated to donation options. So we see all of the problems with the single-issue campaign. Sends the public the wrong message. Promotes welfare reform that is basically in the interests of industry and increases production efficiency and because of the propaganda that these organizations feed people use a bad pun um, but the the propaganda that these organizations feed people that this is an important step Costco has made an important step sorry that makes people feel more comfortable about eating veal which is why Randy Strauss from Strauss Veal which I think is the largest producer it's certainly one of the largest producers in the United States and I discuss this in my book, Strauss talks about if you can convince people that the veal's being raised in a more humane way, then consumption will increase. I think that's really pathetic. I mean, not from his, he's a business person. 
So, I mean, you know, makes perfect sense from his perspective. I'm not saying it's pathetic from his perspective. It's pathetic from the animal advocacy perspective that this sort of nonsense is promoted by these organizations. But they're businesses. They sell single-issue campaigns. But the other, uh, the other item that came to my attention this week, which really made it clear that animal rights has no meaning whatsoever, the concept animal rights is meaningless, is Temple Grandin. Uh, the, the movie that HBO made about Temple Grandin uh, won, uh, won awards at the Emmy event. And, and, you know, so, there, so Temple Grandin got in the news again as being uh, an animal rights advocate because she has done so much. And, and PETA gave her an award, and immediately after the Emmys, uh, uh, the Emmy ceremony, PETA uh, complimented uh, uh, her again, and a number of other organizations talked about how delighted they were that, um, that Grandin had got, or that the movie had gotten the award and what a great movie it was. Um, there is something so bizarre. I have to say, um, I, I've been doing this for almost 30 years now, and I've seen a lot of really strange stuff, really, really strange stuff. And, um, but I have to say that, um, that uh, along with um, Peter Singer's declaration that uh, we can have uh, mutually satisfying sexual contact with non-human animals, I, I have to say I find the Temple Grandin phenomenon to be bizarre totally bizarre. This is a woman who designs slaughterhouses. Uh, this is, um, I, I, and, and she's an animal rights advocate, and, um, and she gets awards from uh, organizations like PETA. Uh, if, there's really very little to say about that. Um, if, you, if you don't find that bizarre, I guess there's probably nothing that I can say to you that will persuade you. Um, it is truly bizarre that uh, that that someone like Grandin uh, is uh, feted as uh, an animal rights uh, hero, uh, and it's just it's peculiar. Now I will move on to uh, talk about uh, two issues that I want to discuss briefly. Um, one is there is an argument that is made by um, some animal advocates that because we use animals, because we can't help using animals, that we ought not to have a non-negotiable moral baseline of veganism that says we should not eat, wear, or use animals. To put the argument in a more simple, direct way, the argument is, well, you can't avoid using animals, so it's okay to be a flexitarian or to eat cheese or to have ice cream or to eat meat. Uh, happy meat, of course. Of course, it must be happy meat. Uh, but but it, that, that's the argument. The argument is, uh, is, 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 is we can't avoid using animals, so we ought not to have a non-negotiable moral baseline. I think that argument uh, is a terrible argument, and it's easy to see that it's a terrible argument by looking at the argument in the human context. Let us assume I were to say, well, you know, we all benefit, all white people benefit from discrimination against people of color. 
and even those of us who are opposed to racism, nevertheless, simply by virtue of not being in a minority and being a white person, uh, particularly if you're a white male, you benefit from discrimination against people of color. And if you're a white male, you also benefit from discrimination against women, even if you object to racism and to sexism. So if I were to say, well, you know, this ha- you can't help but avoid the fact that we live in a society in which white males are favored over people of color and women because of pervasive systematic discrimination. So we, shouldn't, we don't have to have any sort of non-negotiable moral baseline that says we shouldn't use racist epithets or we shouldn't engage in sexist behavior or we shouldn't have norms that say that we shouldn't discriminate. The discrimination goes on. But we, should, you know, we don't really need to, to, to be unduly concerned about it. I mean, if we ourselves discriminate now and then, it's okay because discrimination is inherent in the, in the society, in the culture. The culture is structured so there, there, there's that discrimination. So if you engage in that discrimination now and then, if you use racist epithets, if you used sexist epithets, if you engage in sexist behavior, if you engage in discriminatory behavior against people of color or women, that's okay because you can't avoid it. It's part of the society. We don't need to have and we shouldn't have, because because it's part of the society, we shouldn't have a non-negotiable moral baseline that says we shouldn't engage in racist, racist or sexist epithets. We shouldn't engage in discrimination. On the contrary, it is because the discrimination is pervasive and is part of the structure of the society that we need those moral rules. The same thing applies when we talk about non-human animals. Think about it. Yes, it is impossible to avoid animal use, even if you are very committed to being a vegan and not eating, wearing, or using animals. There is a problem in that. Problems with using. The problem is you drive on a road. The surfacing material of the road may have, and, and from what I read, generally does have animal products in it. I'm doing this podcast. I'm talking into my iPod Nano. It's a plastic item. I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that there are animal products in there, in, in the part of the plastic. Same thing with computers. I ordered a car that didn't have leather seats. The car has glue in it, and I'm sure that the glue has animal ingredients car has plastic in it. Plastic probably has animal ingredients. So I, I don't avoid all animal use. I can't avoid all animal use. Nobody can avoid all animal use. Even if I stop driving a car, even if I stopped using iPod nanos and computers, I would still be using products, using things that have some animal ingredients in them because I live in a, in a, in a, in a world in which Slaughterhouse materials are cheap and available, readily available, easily available, and they are used in just about everything. That doesn't mean that it's okay for me to eat cheese, or that I can be a flexitarian, or that there is no need for any sort of non-negotiable moral baseline. Quite the contrary. It is because that use is pervasive. It is because animal products are used in everything, that we need to take a stand and say, with respect to those things that we have a choice about, 
I don't have a choice about driving on roads. I don't have a choice about... I can't get a computer that doesn't have animal products in the plastic. Apparently, I mean, given that from what I read, these, these ingredients are ubiquitous. They're all over the place. So, with respect to those things I have a choice over, what I put in my body, what I wear, what I put on my body in terms of what I use as a, as a shampoo or as a body lotion or, or you know, w- whether I take supplements in gelatin capsules or not, I have choices over those things. And I refuse to participate. To the extent that I can choose, I choose not to participate in that exploitation. And it is precisely because the exploitation is ubiquitous and those products are all over the place. It is precisely because that speciesism is institutionalized and is, 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 is part of the structure of the society in which I live that I do need to take that moral stand. It is a fundamental matter of justice, just as it is in the case of racism or sexism. It's very easy to see in the human context. And you can, you can multiply the examples. However little you consume, however conscientious you are as a consumer in terms of not buying stuff you don't need and buying fair trade stuff when you do buy stuff, however conscientious you are about that, however conscientious you are, you are still supporting exploitation in some way of somebody that's unavoidable given the system that we have, given the economic system that exists as an international man. Yes, you can try to mitigate the harm by buying free trade stuff, but the bottom line is buying stuff and consuming stuff results in harm, results in exploiting other people, other humans. Put aside, it involves harming animals in various ways. Put that aside. It harms humans. Now, for somebody to say, well, we don't need any non-negotiable baseline rules because exploitation is inherent in the way the world works, the answer is no, 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 no. You need, you need those moral baselines precisely because that is the way the world works. And if you ever want to change it, if you're ever going to get justice, you need moral baselines that attempt to shift the paradigm. We all recognize this in the human context. But when it comes to non-humans, that speciesism kicks in. The commercialization kicks in that characterizes these large animal organizations. And you get people saying, oh, well, you're just being a purist. If you won't eat, if you're not a flexitarian, you're being a purist. Those are the two choices. You're either a flexitarian or you're a purist. That argument simply doesn't work. It's a speciesist argument. It is precisely because the exploitation is pervasive. It is precisely because animals are things that we need to take the position that we don't regard animals as things. It is because they are property. It is because they only have extrinsic value. We need to take the position that we don't regard them as property and we regard them as having inherent value. And that when it comes to choices that we make, when it comes to situations in which we can make a choice, we need to make that choice. We need to make the just choice. The choice not to consume, not to wear, not to use. So, this this argument is made, as I said before, with distressing frequency, for the most part, by large animal organizations. Why are these organizations taking this position? They're taking this position because 
They are businesses. These large groups are businesses. Their goal is to have the largest donor base possible, which they attempt to achieve by asking people to do as little as possible, making them feel as good as they can about what little they do, that maximizes contributions. So, when you're trying to have a wide donor base, you underplay veganism. You say, well, yes, veganism is okay, it's a way of reducing suffering, like cage-free eggs or like happy meat, but it's really no different from any of that. And anybody who says differently is simply being a purist. Because, I mean, we can't avoid animal use. So therefore, anybody who says we shouldn't eat animals and who is critical of the concept of being a flexitarian, those people are simply being purists. Again, make the same argument in the human context. You can easily see it doesn't work. It would be a horrifying argument to make. Nobody, no progressive person would accept it. But when it comes to animals, we do. When it comes to animals, these speciesist arguments are made and they should not be accepted. It is because these organizations want to maximize their donor base by making people feel good for doing very, very little that they make this second argument, this other, other argument about veganism that I want to address, and that is veganism is difficult. The people who are always telling us that being vegan is difficult, the large animal groups, they're saying, well, you know, you've got to promote vegetarianism because veganism is difficult. Who says? They do. Now think about this for a second. When you have large animal groups telling everybody that veganism is difficult, what message does it send to the public? Well, that's sort of a rhetorical question. The answer is that veganism is difficult. So people feel okay about not being vegans because the animal people, the animal organizations are telling them it's hard to be vegan. You have people like Peter Singer, the father, the so-called father of the animal rights movement, making statements like, it's okay to be a conscientious omnivore. That's a morally defensible position. It's all right to treat yourself to the luxury of, of meat and animal products if they come from animals that have been treated well and humanely killed. When you have people making statements like that, the message that is sent is very, very destructive. Being vegan is not difficult. This is the number one problem that we have to encounter with, that we have to deal with, with the general public. And, the, and, and what's sad about it is, we end up arguing with, contradicting what the animal people are saying. So you've got a population out there that is convinced that veganism is difficult. Why? Because the animal people are saying it's difficult. The animal people are saying veganism is difficult and there are other things that we can do that will allow us to continue consuming animal products. And we can feel good about it because we're discharging our moral obligation to animals. We're being conscientious omnivores. I mean, the father of the animal rights movement says that that's a morally defensible position. So we can continue eating animal products. We can even have meat. As long as the animal's been treated well and killed in a, in a, in a relatively painless way, well, you know, that's okay. As long as we buy meat from animals slaughtered in accordance with the Temple Grandin's uh, uh, slaughtering methods or animals that are sold by stores like Whole Foods and things like that. That's fine. We can do that. The animal people are telling us that that's 
a morally all right thing to do. I suggest that that's a, a, a terribly troubling aspect of modern animal advocacy. Because animal advocacy has become a business, and it is a business, it's a multi-million and probably billion dollar business. It's not probably, it definitely is. It's a multi-billion dollar business. Uh, because there's so much money involved, it's become um, a, a business in the worst sense of the word. It really has become a commercial enterprise. The values don't matter. What matters is the money. And, um, and that's terribly troubling. It really is terribly troubling. But, um, but, but I think it's important to sort of be aware of these arguments and to reject them. The idea that we shouldn't have a moral baseline of veganism because it's impossible for us to avoid all animal use is nonsense. We need to have a moral baseline of veganism precisely because animal exploitation is so rampant, so pervasive. Because animals are things, we need to shift the paradigm. The only way you can shift the paradigm is by getting people to see that animals are not things that we should consume. That they are beings with inherent value and that they aren't there for us to eat, to wear, to use in experiments, to hunt, for any purpose. And we need to reject the idea that veganism is difficult. It is not difficult. We need to stop promoting that idea. We need to emphasize to people how easy it is to be vegan. How easy it is to be, because it is. Especially if you're really interested in your health, it's really easy to be a healthy vegan. And it's cheap to be a healthy vegan if you're talking about eating fruits, vegetables, and nuts. And you're not buying all this processed stuff that, that is expensive and isn't any good for you anyway. It's easy. And for those people who like sweet things or like, you know, the, the, the sort of more junk food sorts of things, you can get them all now in vegan versions. And they're every bit as good as the non-vegan version. It's not hard. It's really very easy. And I think that's the idea we ought to be promoting. And, um, and it's sad when people say to me, well, you know, I hear what you're saying and it makes sense to me, but you know, I got some literature from Organization X and, and you know, they're, they're saying that it's okay to, you know, as long as the, the chickens have been gassed and not electrically stunned, that, you know, that, that, then I, I don't have to boycott Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore. I can, you know, I can purchase chicken corpses at a Kentucky Fried Chicken as long as the chickens are gassed because the boycott will be called off. What message does that send when you tell people, we're going to call off the boycott when you start gassing chickens? The message that's sent is, it's okay to eat those chickens now. That's the message that's sent. And it's a bad message. The, uh, the next thing I want to talk about is related to something I said earlier about Temple Grandin being regarded as an animal rights activist. You know animal rights doesn't mean anything when Temple Grandin is regarded as an animal rights activist. Uh, and... Um, what I want to talk about is what something that is going on now, and that doesn't surprise me. Indeed, it would surprise me if it weren't happening. But it's a replay of something that happened in the late 80s and early 90s when uh, a lot of the large organizations, including the organizations that were new on the scene in the 1980s and the organizations that started off uh, uh, endorsing animal rights and, and, and in various ways trying to distinguish animal rights from animal welfare, started embracing animal welfare reform. 
And what happened at that time was these organizations said, well, we believe in animal rights as the long-term goal, but in order to get to the long-term goal, we have to do animal welfare reform in the meantime, because animal welfare reform, the arguments that you would hear would, would be uh, generally the argument that animal welfare reform would lead to animal rights, and that uh, animal welfare reform would do something for animals now, that we had to do something for animals now, and what that something was, was animal welfare reform. And um, what I uh, argued uh, in the, the work that I did in the 1990s that resulted in my book, Rain Without Thunder, was that there was no reason to believe that animal welfare reform would lead to animal rights in any in any way. Uh, that um, that that uh, uh, the idea that animal welfare reform would was somehow causally related to the abolition of of particular forms of exploitation or even to the significant reduction of the number of animals used was simply ridiculous. It was simply wrong. That there was no historical evidence to support that proposition. I mean, it wouldn't be right in any event. I mean, I, even even if animal welfare reform did lead to to um, animal rights or to the abolition of animal exploitation, I, I would still have a problem with it because animal welfare basically says that uh, it is all right for us to use animals as long as we treat them in particular ways. And you know, anybody who tries to to say that that's not what animal welfare uh, uh, proposes. Uh, is is simply not paying attention, and and the 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 Costco uh, episode that I alluded to, or that I referred to earlier, is perfect uh, a perfect example of that. However, you want to you want to spin that. The bottom line is you've got animal people saying Costco, well, and, they're, and they're doing it they're doing it explicitly saying Costco's taking an important step. And what does that convey? That conveys the notion that it's all right, it's morally all right for us to use animals as long as we. Um, uh, 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 don't inflict unnecessary suffering on them, to use the expression in the Mercy for Animals website, or uh, you know that we treat them humanely uh, and, and whatnot. So um, there, but, but so I still have a problem with it. But at least I would understand. I mean, if, if animal welfare reform was actually doing something and was actually leading in the direction of abolition, I would, I would say, gee, you know, I, I, don't, I still don't agree with it. I still think it would be better, uh, given it's a zero-sum game, I still think it would be better if we put the resources into nonviolent, creative, vegan education. Because remember something, every dollar that we spend on, on something else is a dollar less that we spend on vegan education. Every minute of time that we spend on something other than vegan education is you know, a time less spent on vegan education. So, so it is a zero-sum game. It's not that we can do everything. We can't. We live in a world of limited resources. So I would still say that, that we ought to pursue uh, 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 creative nonviolent vegan advocacy, even if I thought that animal welfare reform uh, was was providing significant protection to animals or was leading in the direction of animal rights uh, in the sense of abolishing animal use or even reducing significant numbers of animals but i don't i mean I, I, but i that's not happening i mean so 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 I would at least understand the attraction of it, but i don't understand why it's attractive because it's not doing any of those things. And you know the other argument, I mean, uh, the related point that is made in defense of animal welfare that was made in the 1980s uh, and in the 1990s and continues to be made now, is this argument that well we need to be doing something now. We you know we've got to help animals now. And and I, you know, number one, animal welfare reform is doing very little for animals. Number two, it, I mean, it's not providing significant increases in welfare benefits. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
Um, number two, it is for the most part, animal welfare reform is doing very, very little other than making animal exploitation more efficient. Number three, most of these improvements are things that industry would make anyway. I mean, industry, remember something, intensive farming is something that developed in the 1950s. The inefficiencies, the economic inefficiencies of animal, of, uh, of intensive farming uh, are only now becoming known. And there's, you know, there's a lot of data out there, and as the data come in, the data seem to indicate that the more intense you are, the more that's likely to cause stress problems with the animals. Because remember, factory farming was developed at a time when people were not thinking about animals being subject to stress. So nobody was really thinking about, well, if you pack a lot of animals in a, in a building, they're, they're going to get sick, they're going to get stressed, they're going to need antibiotics, they're going to need veterinary care, they're going to, you know, a lot of them won't be able to be sold, their corpses won't be able to be sold, or their products won't be able to be sold, etc. So, so at the time factory farming was developed, a lot of these things weren't really sort of taken into the equation. And, and, and the data coming out now are indicating things like, well, you know, these intensive farming operations have a lot of economic inefficiencies. So as this information comes out, industry is responding slowly, as industries always do, particularly new industries like intensive farming, which is, as I say, relatively recent in the grand scheme of things. So, uh, so we have this argument that, well, um, we've got to do something for animals now, and that something is animal welfare reform. That, that assumes that animal welfare reform is doing something for animals. And, and it's not, for the most part. And even to the extent that it is, it's stuff that would be done anyway, basically, by industry. I mean, there's a, there's a comedic drama going on now in terms of people arguing with poultry producers that they ought to adopt gassing. It is absolutely clear that gassing poultry is an economically efficient, better, you know, it's a better way to go. There's a capital cost involved in switching from electrical stunning to gassing. But by and large, it can be recouped in a fairly short period of time, which is why you're seeing this transition. As this information gets out, you're seeing poultry producers switching more and more to gassing. But you've got the animal people saying, this is, a, you know, this is our new campaign. The animal people aren't, you know, these animal organizations, say what you will about them. They are not dumb. They know that it's economically inefficient. Indeed, if you look at the literature produced by organizations like PETA, and HSUS and the organizations that are promoting gassing, you will see that they make the argument that it's economically efficient to switch from electrical stunning to gassing, which it is. It clearly is. So, for the most part, these are changes that would be made by industry anyway. I mean, industry, why would industry, I mean, it, it, and, and, it, and it pays in, a certain, in certain ways, for industry to fight with the animal organizations, because first of all, not everybody's ready to switch. Not everybody's re ready to make that capital capital uh, investment. The investment that they would have to make up front to switch from a stunning operation to a gassing operation. Not all producers are ready to do that. There is still debate going on about the various efficiencies involved. And as long as industry is fighting with the animal people in this kabuki dance, they don't have to do anything, I mean, you know, they end up fighting about something that they're probably going to end up doing anyway because it's economically efficient. So this idea that animal welfare reform is going to help animals now, I mean, if, it, it's so crazy. I mean, the animals that are in, in places now aren't going to be helped at all. We're talking about the future. To the extent that these, that these measures are adopted in the future, they may provide some welfare benefit to animals then, but 
that's going to be, A, a very small benefit, and B, it's not going to do anything to move animals outside of the property paradigm. It's going to further enmesh them in the property paradigm because all that's happening is animal use is being made more economically efficient. But the really important thing to focus on, people, is that these things are going to happen anyway. You don't need to put zillions of dollars into these campaigns. I mean, the reason why these organizations put a lot of money into these campaigns is they get more money back in donations. It's an investment. But you don't need to put the money into those campaigns to get these, these changes. These changes are going to happen anyway for the most part. Factory farming is undergoing a change. I, I wouldn't call it a, a significant change. People in animal organizations would call it a significant change because they have a vested interest in promoting it as a, as, a, as, a, as a significant change. Factory farming is going through a change, however you characterize it. The way I characterize it, the way they characterize it. But it's, not, it, it, it's, it's, it's going through a change because the industry is now coming to grips with its inefficiencies. That's what's going on. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. The changes are very, very small. The changes are very, very small. Uh, as a footnote to that, one of the great uh, battles of recent years, of course, was the Proposition 2 business out in California, where we were told, oh, they're getting rid of battery cages out in California, and they're now going to be required to go cage-free. Well, I would f first of all say that going from battery to cage-free, it, it involves very little increased cost on the part of uh, on the far part of producers and actually for various reasons related to health and and because people want to feel better about consuming these eggs they will pay some amount more uh, for the eggs it costs very little to produce a cage-free egg over the conventional battery egg it costs very very uh, little there have been various studies that show it costs less than uh, or it costs about a cent to produce a cent more to produce a um, a cage-free egg. There are different studies, but there are studies that say one cent, two cents, three cents, etc. So we saw in the Proposition Two campaign that that HSUS was uh, claiming that uh, their victory was going to eradicate cages for hens, um, and and I would say that. Um, the characterization should be we're going to torture them in large buildings rather than torturing them in cages because a cage-free egg operation is for the most part one large cage so uh, and the animals are still crawling over each other they're still urinating on each other defecating on each other it is still torture it is still torture it is like well you know you go from a bare waterboard to a padded waterboard but we don't even have cage-free in California. First of all, Proposition 2 doesn't come into effect, if it, comes, if it ever comes into effect. It will be 2015. 2015 it will come into effect. Number one. Number two, producers out in California now are moving to what they call the enriched cage, which is a bigger cage. And the animal advocates are saying, oh no, you've got to get rid of the cage. And the egg industry is saying, no we don't. What it says is the animals have to have space to be able to move and turn around and not touch each other with their wings, etc. And we're doing that. We're providing the enriched cage, which is provided uh, for uh, under the European uh, directive to eradicate battery cages. 
the alternative that producers can use and that many of them are using in Europe is the enriched cage. So what we're talking about is a bigger battery cage. And so now the animal advocates are upset because the egg producers in California are saying, oh, well, we don't have to get rid of the cages and we're not going to get rid of the cages. We're just going to switch to this and we'll, we'll, we'll be able to market these things as happy eggs. Proposition two, happy eggs. Animal people, not happy about that. So what? We'll spend the next 10 years and, you know, 20 years, 50, however long in legal challenges. And ultimately, the legislation doesn't require the eradication of battery cages. Read it. Read what proposition, it's not, it's a, uh, it's a, it was a proposition, it was a ballot proposition. But the ballot proposition doesn't require that cages be eradicated. So Proposition 2 does not require that battery cages be eradicated. You have animal people saying that's how it should be interpreted. Well, that's their view. That's not what the proposition says. So it appears as though the wonderful victory, and even if it, re even if, if it required a switch to cage-free, I'd still say big deal. Big deal, because many egg producers are moving in that direction anyway. If you remember, and I don't know whether this was something that was not particularly uh, uh, publicized at the time, but there were uh, over 100, as I recall, egg producers in California or uh, farms in California that were supporting, not necessarily all egg producers, but where they were supporting Proposition 2 because they had already switched to these alternative ways because, A, they result in increased profits in terms of you can you can pass along any increase to the public multiply it by a healthy multiplier and people will pay that money because they think that these products are healthier or because they'll feel better about consuming them etc but for whatever and because production in a lot of cases switching to the quote humane or the more quote humane end quote way actually lowers production costs. So there, in, in some cases, there won't even be increased production costs that need to be passed along. There'll be savings. The bottom line is Proposition 2 has failed, even if it would have led to the eradication of the battery cage, even if it would have, if, 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 it, if it would have required cage-free eggs, moving to a cage-free situation. I would still say, so what? But it's not even doing that. So these... And how much did that cost? And how much effort did, did, went into that? If you took all that money and you took all that effort and you put that into a creative nonviolent vegan campaign, would you turn everybody vegan? No. Would you have made a lot more people think about veganism and a lot more people switch? The answer is yes. So you ask, why didn't they do it? Well, I would suppose the answer to that is an organization like HSUS, which I would imagine, I don't know anything about their membership profile, but I would imagine most of their members consume animal products. As a matter of fact, I'd be stunned if that wasn't the case. I'd be stunned if it wasn't the case. So let's not talk to them about veganism. Let's talk to them about supporting Proposition 2, which basically requires, even if you live in California, that nothing's really going to change in your life. You're not going to have to do anything. And you can pat yourself on the back. You can fall over patting yourself on the back because you're a good person because you're buying Proposition 2 eggs or whatever it is you're buying from the humane state of California. So, so I would suspect that's why you didn't see the, the vegan campaign. But in any event, how, I mean, all that effort, all that money, all that, all that effort, all that money, go into a campaign that's doing what? 
less than nothing, basically. I mean, it would have been, in my view, it would have been nothing if it required a move to cage-free eggs. But egg producers are interpreting it as allowing enriched cages. And you know what? As a lawyer, I got to say that their interpretation, I, I, read, I read the proposition, doesn't say you got to eradicate the cage. It says you have to provide space so that the animals can turn around or move or whatever it says. And then it only becomes an empirical question whether or not the larger cage gives them that or doesn't. And so they'll fight about that and they'll come to you and ask for donations because they've got to litigate. It's a matter of, you know, they've, they've got to go to the courts and blah, 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 blah. And we'll see more and more years of campaigning. Anybody who thinks this is progress is dreaming. Anybody who thinks this is doing something for animals now. So, in any event, what was happening in the 1980s, early 1990s, was you had these organizations saying, yeah, we believe in animal rights, but we're going to promote animal welfare reform because we think animal welfare reform will lead to animal rights. Wrong. No proof of that. Indeed, we've, been, we've, had animal, we've had animal welfare standards for 200 years now, more than 200 years. We're using more animals now in more horrific ways than ever before. There is no empirical proof on the planet Earth that animal welfare reform will lead to abolition. And, supposedly, we had to endorse animal welfare reform because you've got to do something for animals, animals, animals suffering now. So... Proposition 2 is going to, you know, Proposition 2 and all this nonsense, uh, you know, the, the Costco veal business, this is going to help animals now. Nonsense. You believe that, you probably believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. So, animal rights ended up getting appropriated by these organizations that wanted to use the rhetoric of animal rights as a selling point. But basically, they were no different from the animal welfare organizations of the 1950s. As a matter of fact, in certain ways, certain ways those organizations probably did more, actually. But, you know, whether that's... The bottom line is, they were really no different. They were, they were really not changing at all. They were just changing the rhetoric. They were changing the appearance, not the reality. Same thing's happening now with abolition. You know, what I tried to do when I developed the abolitionist approach, which I, I started doing in large part as I was observing what was happening to animal rights, was to try to focus on what was really the central, what were the central ideas of animal rights? Well, the central ideas of animal rights, as far as I understood that concept, was that you didn't regulate exploitation, you abolished it. And, and that the, the, the way to do that was by being a vegan. And so I, I identified fairly early on the concept of veganism with animal rights. And then I... I also brought this notion in of nonviolence because it seemed to me that the animal rights movement was an extension of the peace movement. That the problem was violence. Violence wasn't the solution. Uh, violence was the problem. And that we needed to sort of rethink how we thought about violence. So what I tried to do with the abolitionist approach is abolition is not just a goal. It's a means to the goal. It's a means to the end. I mean, what I was reacting to when I developed this, the abolitionist approach, was the idea that, well, welfare was somehow going to be an, a means to the end of, of achieving animal rights, which was an amorphous concept in any event um, when, it was, uh, when it was first articulated. But, and, and I was arguing, well, look, you know, the, the welfare reform is inconsistent with, a welfare reform is inconsistent with the recognition that animals have inherent value as a moral matter and that we ought not to pursuing, be pursuing animal welfare reform 
as a general matter, but it didn't work as a practical as a practical matter. This is not just a matter of theory, people. As a matter of fact, it is not a matter of theory. It's a matter of practicality. Animal welfare reform doesn't work. And, and so what I tried to do in reaction to the appropriation by these organizations of animal rights and making it consistent with animal welfare to the point where now, in 2010, animal rights has become so meaningless, Temple Grandin's an animal rights activist. That's just still just takes my breath away every time I think about it. Sorry, but it does. And, and so, so I, I think that, um, you know, so what I tried to do with the, with the, with the uh, abolitionist approach was to say, look, this is a way of looking at, this is not just a matter of, of, of the end, of what we want, abolition, we want to abolish animal rights. This is a way of getting to abolition. And the way we get to abolition is the first thing we've got to do. And it's a big job. But if it's not done, nothing will change. And that is promoting veganism. If we don't promote veganism, if we don't shift the paradigm in favor of veganism, Nothing is going to change ever. Nothing will ever change. As long as people are eating them, wearing them, using them, making decisions to directly participate in the exploitation of animals, then it's never going to change. Ever, ever, ever. So, the abolitionist approach promoted creative, nonviolent, vegan advocacy on a large-scale basis, as the way to start shifting the paradigm in a really effective way, rather than continuing to pursue this nonsense welfare reform, which was, as a matter of moral doctrine, wrong, but as a matter of the practical world, never worked, didn't work, hasn't worked. I meet so many animal advocates who know so little about history. You know, you, you know the old expression, those who don't know history are condemned to repeat it. And so I meet young animal advocates and they say, oh, look, you know, we can pursue animal welfare reform. And, you know, they act as though animal welfare reform is something that was invented last week and this is a great idea and let's try this. And they, they are completely unaware of the history of the animal welfare movement, animal welfare reforms that have happened in the past and their complete failure. So... What I was trying to do with the abolitionist, abolitionist approach is to say, yeah, it's about a goal, but it also prescribes a means to, the, to, to, to achieve that goal. It's not just about a goal. Now what's happening is the same thing that happened in the, the late 80s and early 90s. It's really, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting to watch it. I predicted it would happen. That you have these large organizations that say, oh, okay, we really want to, you know, we're really abolitionists too. We just believe that welfare reform, we maintain welfare reform will get to abolition. That's no different from what they did in the 1980s and the 1990s with respect to animal rights. Saying that, well, you know, we agree that, that abolition is the long-term goal, but we think we ought to use welfare reform as a means of achieving that goal. To the extent that they're using abolition in that way, that's a complete misuse of abolition, at least as I've articulated the paradigm. They're free to use it any way they want to use it, but they're misusing it in that they're ignoring the central uh, idea of the abolitionist approach, is that it's not just about a goal. It's not just about the end. It's about a means to the end. It's about a means to the end that is consistent with the end. That's why I say veganism is applying the principle of abolition in your individual life. So... I think that if, if what is occurring continues, 
in terms of the appropriation of abolition, if people uh, accept the idea that abolition is the end, but that welfare reform will get to abolition, then what we're going to have is, um, when they make a movie about Temple Grandin's uh, uh, you know, children or whatever, who are um, slaughterhouse designers or what, you know, they're going to say, well, you know, they're abolitionists. You know, they're, these are abolitionists. So you're going to have the same sort of appropriation of the concept, watering it down. And now I don't think, I think that there's a good chance that that's not going to happen with abolition the way it happened with animal rights uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the abolitionist approach is so clear about providing uh, a means to achieve the goal. Animal rights was not, unfortunately, animal rights was a somewhat amorphous concept right out of the box. I mean, right, right from the beginning, it was, um, it was a concept that really didn't have much meaning except to distinguish itself from animal welfare, but nobody was really sure about how to do that. Um, so, so uh, e- even strong proponents of animal rights were, di- you know, disagreed amongst themselves about what exactly it meant. Um, so it was an amorphous concept. It was easy, in certain ways, to appropriate it because it was a rhetorical concept. I mean, in a lot of ways, the concept of rights as a general matter has become very rhetorical, even when we're talking about human rights. Nobody really knows what that means, and sort of it's it's bandied about quite a bit. I mean, I, I have views about what I I think it means, and I've talked about that in some of my uh, some of my writings. But, um, you know, so, so the concept of animal rights right out of the box was somewhat more amorphous. So it was easy for these, easier for these organizations to appropriate it because it wasn't clear what the meaning of it was. I've been very clear as to what the abolitionist approach means, what it means to say abolition uh, and, and what the abolitionist approach is, and that it is the notion that we reject animal welfare reform and that we believe that we ought to put our time and resources into creative, nonviolent vegan advocacy and that we ought to embrace veganism ourselves and that, you know, we ought to embrace, embrace the principle of nonviolence. I've been very, very clear that this is a prescription for getting to the goal. Now, um, and also I think because now we have the internet, which uh, despite all of its uh, warts, uh, has the advantage of allowing people to communicate in a way that really wasn't, uh, not really wasn't, was not possible in the late 80s and, um, and, and, and the 90s when this appropriation was going on because it was basically uh, an activity of large organizations. The large organizations controlled um, the, the um the communications, and so they were really able to appropriate the concept with no, no really, no significant criticism, um, and uh, and and it, it was it was wholesale. Whereas I think it's going to be harder for the organ. I'm not saying that they won't try to do it and that they won't achieve success to some degree, uh, and it's going on now. I mean, I mean, a number. I mean, there there is no large organization in the United States and Britain of which I'm aware that I would not characterize as new welfare. It's not one single one. Particular. I mean the. The, the, the organizations in the United States, all of them are new welfarist, single-issue campaign organizations. The differences among them are pretty slight, um, and uh, they differ primarily in the subject matters of their campaigns. Uh, but by and large, these are all new welfarist organizations. Some give you know, greater lip service to veganism than others do. Um, most or many of these organizations don't give don't even give lip service to veganism, um, but but you know some some do. But n- nobody's really con- nobody and, and is 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 promoting a consistent abolitionist vegan advocacy perspective. Uh, they're all trading on these single issue campaigns to uh, a greater or lesser degree. They're all new welfareists to a greater or lesser degree. 
And so I, I have no doubt that there will be some success by these organizations in appropriating the concept of abolition, but I think it's less likely to happen the way, certainly the way it did in the late 80s and early 90s, because uh, uh, there is the internet now, and we can communicate with each other. People can communicate with each other, and people can critique this stuff, and it's, it's interesting. It's happening. When large organizations promote themselves as abolitionists, you see a response to that. You see people talking about how that's not the case. That was something that didn't really go on. I mean, to the extent that it went on, it was conversations with people, at, you know, over the phone, uh, uh, you know, or, or you know, people wrote letters. Remember when people wrote letters? Uh, but but there was really no no way of communicating this on a mass level. There is now, so um, we should be careful about. Uh, and when we see these large organizations using abolition, we should call them on it, uh, and we should make clear that uh, the abolitionist approach has a set meaning. And the set meaning is, you know, whatever else it means, it means we promote abolition. Not regulation. We don't think it's uh, a, a good idea, both as a matter of morality and as a matter of practical, you know, what, what's happening in the world. Um, it's a bad idea to promote animal welfare reform, and that given it's a zero sum game, and given that we want to do the right thing, we ought to be putting the time and resources into uh, creative nonviolent vegan advocacy and being vegans ourselves and recognizing the importance of veganism as a non negotiable moral baseline. If you are not a vegan, you are participating directly in animal exploitation. You can't avoid, as I, I pointed out earlier, you can't avoid all animal use because it's all around us and we have, there are lots of things over which we have no choice. But, just like we benefit from racism, which is all around us, you know, we benefit from computers that have animal products, we benefit from racism, we benefit from sexism, doesn't mean we shouldn't have moral baselines. As a matter of fact, the only way you get rid of the pervasive discrimination of racism, sexism, or speciesism is by having those non-negotiable moral baselines. And so the abolitionist approach says, we've got non-negotiable moral baselines, veganism. We believe that we ought to put our resources into creative, nonviolent vegan education. We're not interested in these welfareist campaigns. Our time, our labor, our efforts are spent educating people about veganism and about the need for abolition. And we believe and embrace nonviolence. Violence is the problem. It is not the solution to the problem. You burn down a slaughterhouse, ten more, if the demand doesn't change, ten more arise, or ten existing ones in increase production capacity. Violence is, I mean, putting aside the, the moral problems with violence, violence is another solution that simply doesn't work. Which is why, interestingly, many of the people who promote violence are also welfareists. I mean, they're promoting solutions. They're promoting supply-side solutions that don't work. There is only one solution that works. It's a demand-side solution. It's by changing the way people think about non-human animals. We'll never find our moral compass as long as they're on our plates, on our backs, and in the products that we use on ourselves, that we choose to buy and use. So I think that you know, we should be very vigilant about this, making it clear that when these large organizations, or anybody, is using abolition in a way that is consistent with welfare reform, in a way that is consistent with violence, they're misusing the concept. Can you stop them from doing it? No. Of course not. But be aware of what they're doing and challenge it. That brings us to the end of commentary number 18. And I can see that um, there's going to be more work um, next door. 
And uh, so I'm going to bring it to an end now before we have a cacophony of loud barking. Okay, that wraps it up for Commentary 18. Thanks very much for listening. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's very, very easy to do. Don't listen to these organizations that tell you it's difficult or that it's daunting. It's not. It's very, very easy. And also think about it this way. However difficult it is for you to be vegan, and I suggest it's not. However difficult it is for you to be vegan, however, think about how difficult it is for all of the animals that you are not vegan. So please, go vegan. It's easy. It's better for your health. It's better for the health of the planet. And most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do. Visit the website, abolitionistapproach.com. Follow me on Twitter. Thanks again.